Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Happy November, everyone. Hard to believe we have under 60 days of this crazy year left. It's also Peanut Butter Lovers Month and National Sandwich Day. So go make yourself a PB&J and have a listen to what we have coming up in the weeks ahead which is the one and only Wayne Himmelsign of Logica Advisors, who's an options whiz and happened to be our first ever guest on this pod, and Jonathan Tolkoff of Commodity Asset Management to talk about, you guessed it, commodities. Then we're off until the new year, get myself a little time on Thanksgiving and Christmas. On to this episode where I got to sit down with someone I've known in the business for many years who recently joined one of my favorite firms in the space. We've got Michael Harris, the newly appointed president of Quest Partners, who oversee more than $2.5 billion via short-term quantitative strategy, focused on maintaining that positive skew profile Managed Futures is known for. We talk about what it was like rising up the ranks from European shift trader to president of one of the largest Managed Futures firms that is Old Shop, Campbell & Company, and how this current volatile commodity environment compares with past such runs, how investors should think about building an ensemble of absolute return strategies, and what exactly the MFA does for its members. Send it! This episode is brought to you by RCM's Managed Futures Group and their Guide to Trend Following White Paper. Quest is featured in that doc along with how trend works, why it works, when it works, and more. Go to rcmalts.com slash education slash white papers to download the paper today. And now back to the show. Okay. How are you, Mike? I'm great. How are you doing, Jeff? Good. Do I say Mike or Michael? I've met you a dozen times and sure still haven't figured that out. So sorry about that. You know, I, I go by uh, either. So uh, whatever you want to call me. Uh, and looks like you're in beautiful downtown Manhattan there. 56th and Park Avenue. It's uh, New York is uh, maybe not back to where it was pre-pandemic, but it's certainly improving by the day. Yeah, some of those pictures, it looks like it's pretty crazy. People everywhere. Yeah, no, it's uh, obviously that everyone is kind of sinking into their new, new uh, either work from home, work from office, hybrid. I think everyone is still kind of figuring that out. But uh, it's good to see people back in the city and, and our employees here in the office. And the energy levels are, are definitely high. Awesome. You guys required people come back in the office or they did so willingly? Or what's that look like? Yeah. So I think like most of uh, New York and a lot of the industry, we've kind of embraced a hybrid approach where our employees are here, you know, two to three days a week and then working from from home the other days. I think in a big place like New York, though, you do have some people that come in every day because maybe they have a small apartment or Wi-Fi is not great at home. Um, and then in other cases, for some of our employees that live a little further outside the city and have those long commutes, I think they really appreciate having a little bit more flexibility. And I'll tell you that I think as an organization, 
the time that people aren't spent commuting, in many cases, they just sit down right in front of the screen and we're probably getting some extra productivity out of those folks, uh, you know, in, uh, in exchange for, for us allowing them to have a little bit more flexibility in their work-life balance. hundred percent. And you're, yeah. you're one of those work-life balance people coming in from Maryland, right? Correct. Yeah. I still live in Baltimore. My children uh, are in uh, middle school and high school. And uh, when they heard I had taken this role up in New York, I think there was a little bit of panic uh, yeah, set in and they uh, informed me that uh, they would be staying in Maryland if I tried to uh, take them to New York. And so got a couple more years until they go off to college. Um, and so it gives me the flexibility. Uh, good old Amtrak um, has actually been been running on time, touch wood, and the Wi-Fi strong. So, you know, there's work from home, work from office and, and WHA, work from Amtrak. So doing work quite a bit train. of that. Yep. I love it. And now do you get the same thing we get being from Chicago? Like, oh my God, Baltimore, do you get shot at every other day? And how do you live there? And, um, right. People from outside in. And I sometimes find myself asking Baltimore people, but I'm like, okay, uh, I don't want to get too far off track here, but what's it like? Is it as dangerous as we read or probably similar to Chicago? There's, there's bad spots and there's good spots. I think just like New York and Chicago, you know, there's, I think it's funny. I have a lot of friends uh, that I grew up with who ended up in the military, a couple of them serving honorably in the special forces. And I remember when I used to go to places, parts of the Middle East, as an example, when I hadn't been there and I was a little bit nervous just because obviously we watch the media and um, they don't they don't talk about the good things that happen in cities. They tend to talk about the bad things. And so I asked one of my friends who was an ex Green Beret, you know, how I should conduct myself. And and he taught me a very important term, which is uh, situational awareness, which yep. just means being obviously uh, aware of your surroundings, kind of always checking your six and uh, looking behind you and thinking about where you go and when and who you're surrounded by. And so I think that if you do that in, in any environment, um, you're going to be safer as a result. But though I really enjoyed the show, The Wire, it uh, <laughs> it, it painted a picture of Baltimore that um uh, is probably only partially true in some of the some of the tougher neighborhoods, but it's a great city. And as I said, I, I love living there. And my wife's from from there. I'm from Maryland originally, but closer to Washington D.C. And uh, it's been a been a pleasure. And I'm so glad that in this this new hybrid world, I can I can still live there and commute up and work in New York. Yeah, except the Giants seem to be better than the Ravens so far. So that might be lead to a little inner office uh, competition. We, we, we shall see. It's been, uh, it's been an interesting year so far uh, across the league and uh, no shortage of, uh, of drama. Um, Tom Brady, obviously, is keeping keeping his name in the headlines with a lot of uh, a lot of fun. Uh, as everyone watches the, you know, probably the biggest biggest divorce that anyone has tracked in, in recent history. And, um, you know, football's been kind of sloppy. Um, she's got more money than him though i was reading right so he he might make out on that one i, I told you it's going to be a really interesting uh you know the lawyers are going to have a field day let's put it that way that that they're probably going to come away with the most right as they do yeah so let's dive into it you kind of have one of the more unique backstories in the industry of having been totally in the cta macro space the entire time uh, versus others that came from equity world or fixed income world or whatever. So kind of take us through how you got started into there 
um, and we'll start to waterfall down into all the good parts. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've interviewed so many people for jobs over the years. I've looked at, you know, thousands upon thousands of resumes and um, not many people, I think, can say that they've been in a, a niche part of the investment world like managed futures for their entire career. And I don't want to say it was accidental because I, I knew, you know, my grandfather bought me my first stock in second or third grade. And I've been addicted to the investment world and its process from, from the time that I was very young and was very thoughtful throughout my academic career about planning for a career in finance. Uh, in fact, now I actually give lectures at a number of universities where I try to help undergrad and grad students kind of figure out earlier um, what part of finance they want to work in and um, start doing some prep work, internships, reading books and, and doing informational interviews with industry participants to help them kind of narrow that down. And for me, I knew that I wanted to be in New York. I wanted to work on the institutional side of the business. And I had a, a connection, a young woman that I went to uh, college with who connected me with a friend's father who was a managing director at Dean Witter and happened to, his name was Mark Hawley, ran the Dean, uh, Dean Witter Managed Futures Department. Hmm. So that ended up being, I did an informational interview with him and um, just to try to figure out how to break into the industry. And we had a connection. He ended up hiring me. Uh, and so I literally started, um, you know, back in 1997. Uh, in in Dean Witter's Managed Futures Department, which was building fund to funds for their high net worth, you know, retail clients, we were invested in in some of the legendary CTAs like John Henry, Chesapeake, Campbell and Company, and just to name a few. Um, and it was it was a great way to start. I was on the product development team, helping put together product, which meant doing a lot of due diligence on managers. And uh, it was interesting, you know, I I spending time with with uh, researchers and traders and portfolio managers, I really kind of caught the trading bug. You know, I, as much as I liked the industry and doing the analysis, it was the ebb and flow of the markets and the energy from a trading floor that really attracted me early on. So I put my you know hat in the ring, if you will, for a trading job uh, at Dean Witter. We uh, were acquired by Morgan Stanley. And so the firm went from big to bigger. And uh, fortunately for us, Morgan Stanley didn't have a managed futures department. So most of our, our group uh, maintained, um, but there were a lot of people competing for some of those trading seats. And uh, a friend had gone over to Refco and was starting up a managed futures team there. Um, it was a great way for me to cut my teeth in the markets, uh, joined the execution desk there, covered about 30 to 40 CTAs and macro managers, and absolutely loved it. Um, I will tell you that. Um, I used to joke that you could train a monkey, though, to do what I did, right? Because if you remember back then, we were on two phones all day. Yeah. We were using computers to tell us where the markets were and to enter fill information, but it wasn't a whole lot of electronic trading happening at that point. And I guess I was half right because most of that obviously has been automated in, over the last 20 to 25 years. Um, and really, you know, that, you know, talking about kind of intellectual curiosity, I was always just fascinated why one you know, macro manager was calling me to buy yen. And then five, five minutes later, a, a CTA or a quant manager was calling to sell yen or, you know, where were these ideas coming from? Was it a, a data point? Was it a team of PMs that, that had a thesis? Were they getting into the trade? Were they getting out, right? They, that kind of information wasn't shared with you on the execution side, which really kind of drove me towards the buy side. And uh, 
I had a relationship at Campbell in, in Maryland. Uh, I had done due diligence on them when I was at, you know, Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, and um, had, a, you know, started talking to the folks over there about um, open roles on the trading side. They needed a European trader. And so in 2000, I moved to, to Baltimore and, and started my uh, 20-year career with Campbell. Uh, I ended mm-hmm. up spending um, 12 years on the execution side, European trader, mostly financial futures and FX ended up so running European the hours. You're, that's like 4 PM till midnight or something. No, no, that <clears throat> 1 AM vice to versa. Sorry. Yeah. 10 or 11. Yeah. So it was get in before the London open at two and, and get prepped, take over the book from Ooh. the Asia, Asian trading team and then hand it off to the U S guys. I'll tell you though, I loved, I didn't love the hours and getting up that, that time of night and, and being upside down in the rest of my life, but I was young and, um, resilient at that, at that point in my career. And it was exciting because you would see everything happening to the tail end of Asia. Um, a lot of key data releases were coming out obviously in, you know, in Europe. And then there was this interesting shift to see whether or not Europe would leave the U S or whether or not the U S like data would come out at eight 30 in, in, on the East coast and whether or not that would completely change the dynamic of, of the market. So really even though I was trading one shift, I felt like I was kind of seeing all geographies. Um, went on to run our FX desk, was deputy head, was global head for about six years. Um, and then, you know, really um, by a un- unfortunate circumstance, our, our then CEO, uh, Bruce Cleland, who was just an absolute industry legend, um, was diagnosed with a, a horrible form of cancer and had to seek treatment. And you know, I think Keith Campbell, the founder at that time, just thought, you know, I could go external and try to bring somebody in or, hey, the firm's been around a long time. I've got some folks that have been with me a lot of years, ended up tapping me um, to be president. And uh, uh, it was a co-leadership model. So our, our uh, co-head of research, Will Andrews, became the, the CEO. And I think there was an, you know, he was more kind of research technology. I was more capital markets and kind of had a sales element to me. And so the two of us were our yin yin to the other person's yang. And there was also a little bit of succession planning kind of built into that, right? You know, we had, we lost Bruce. Um, It was, uh, it was challenging. And I don't think that the firm wanted to, wanted to go through that again, but um, it was interesting making the move from the trading floor to the executive floor. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I'm going to, I want to circle back to that. I want to you piqued my interest with John Henry. So that was 98. So was he kind of on the down slope at that point? Or no, John Henry, you know, I was there 97, 98. I mean, granted, if you remember how much volatility he had in that yeah. portfolio, um, if anything, I think there were a number of folks in the 90s that did quite well by waiting for some of those drawdowns and investing into them because, you know, he he came back from, from many of those periods um, with exceptional performance. Um, but as I said, it wasn't uh, something for the faint of heart, if you will, because there was there was definitely some ball. Yeah, and I always <clears throat> wonder, right, if you took that model from like his model in 1988 or right and put it today, is it just one of like 70 or is it one that's easily accessible in Excel or something? Like, was it just early or was it very good? And then there's the whole sales component of it too, right? That he was very smart in the beginning of getting into Morgan Stanley getting into Dean Witter and having those salespeople push the product. Yeah, it was certainly early days. And I think that, you know, gosh, today, 
people are so, you know, technology is part of our everyday life. Automation is in, you know, in everything, right? You, you get into your car, you, you plug in ways, you use crowdsourcing data, you turn on Pandora or Spotify, and it's helping you, you know, pick music based on an algorithm. So people are becoming, we're, we're you know, hopefully a few years away from maybe driverless cars where you're going to get in an automobile and an algorithm is going to drive you somewhere and the trust that people have to put into it. I, I feel like back then, gosh, we really had to, to do a lot of work to educate investors as to why they should invest in systematic. There was a lot of fear and misunderstanding um, about, you know, what we were doing as an industry. And today, obviously, um, there's still discretionary fundamental and quantitative and systematic. And now this new world of kind of quantumental, if you will, where people are maybe have a discretionary overlay, but are using models and a lot of data to drive decisions. And, you know, it's, it, you don't have to really explain it anymore. It's, it's, um, it's been amazing throughout my career to kind of see both ends of the spectrum of an industry that was really difficult um, to sell. And now one that I believe is a, a cornerstone of most alternative investment portfolios. And was it literally technically called the Dean Winter Managed Futures Department? Right. Was yeah, that, it, was that the moniker at the time or you're using that in no, revisionist that, that history? Was, that, that was the name. I'm pretty sure I still have an old uh, business card from and we were in the World Trade Center of all places. So, oh. um, right. Because then that's, over the years, that's gotten morphed into CTA, then trend following, then back to managed futures, then back to CTA and then global macro. So, right. That was right, part of the confusion and remains part of the confusion of people don't understand the differences between those. I agree. And I think that, you know, and I'm sure that we'll talk about this throughout the discussion, but, you know, I think many of the managers in our space started with a single strategy, whether that was quantitative macro or trend following slash momentum, or in case of Quest, where I'm at now, short term. And then I think as these companies have evolved over time, they've, they've started to do research in new areas. They started to add new signals from some of those other buckets. And that's probably what's what's led to some of the confusion. But, you know, from a naming convention, the, the joke was always that, you know, when hedge funds are doing well, CTAs all were quantitative hedge funds. And when <laughs> hedge funds had a bad period or, you know, somebody had a big drawdown, then it was like, we're CTAs again, right? And, and right now we're a commodity trend, right? Exactly, right. In, in an inflationary environment, you, have, you want to re-highlight the uh, commodity aspect of the portfolio. So it's, you know, ebbs and flows with time i hear you so let's go back to campbell so from the trade desk to president that's a somewhat odd way to climb the ladder um but do you feel like that helped you in being able to do the sales and being able to talk the product of like you knew intimately how the models worked and everything you didn't have to come in from a thirty thousand foot view and dive down you were vice versa going up yeah i mean i think ultimately you know, a, a researcher, a PM is probably would be the best person to speak to investors and prospective investors because they know the strategy intimately, right? They, they created it and they watch it every single day. But let's face it, a lot of those folks don't want to be out there talking to people, right? Yeah. They would prefer to be heads down um, in the data, doing research, creating new strategies. And so, you know, I think that in a lot of cases, when you're a systematic manager, you have to give a voice to the strategy, meaning, um, you know, there's this unfortunate term that's been thrown around, you know, the black box, right? And for years, I've said that, 
you know, I can't understand why people would call quantitative or systematic rule-based, you know, investing black box, because to me, um, granted, most firms don't want to give you all their secret sauce and tell you every, you know, show you every line of code. But it's easy to say, this is the strategy that the, we built. This is the data that we're looking at. This is our time horizon. These are the markets we're trading. You know, you, there's a lot of transparency, right? And you can look at the back test and say, this is how the strategy is performed in different regimes, right? So I, I don't think that that's black box. I would make the argument that a discretionary trader, you know, can you look into somebody's mind? I mean, that's yeah, the ultimate that's more black, black box. box. Like, you know, are they sick? Did they just go through a divorce? Is something going on at home with one of their kids? Like, these are all things that have a, an impact maybe on their decision-making. They're kind of, you know, you think about behavioral economics, kind of that fear and greed aspect. I think it's a lot harder to quantify that. Um, and so it's, it's just been, uh, for me, I felt like, you know, with being a market participant, watching the models trade, being part of the investment committee and, and seeing it all come together, it made it a lot easier for me to, to kind of go out and, and be the face of the firm and talk to investors and, and prospects about why they should be invested in the face in the space and what were the differentiators that made us unique. And were, were you ever like, oh, I wish I was just back on the desk slinging aluminum trades or something? You know, it's funny. <laughs> I, I did. I did miss the trading floor. There's just, as I said, that was what attracted me um, to the execution space early on was just the energy that you get. I mean, there's there's literally nothing like, you know, when a non-farm payroll number comes out and uh, just the excitement of, you know, rush of, of volatility markets moving around the world and just being a part of that, kind of being able to kind of read the tea leaves and see it all happen. Um, but at the same time, I think I was ready for a new challenge, right? I mean, you think about it, there was this, um, I had lots of, you know, you know work directly with research. Certainly everything we were doing at that point was starting to automate the trading process. So working very closely with technology, um, the back office and the operations team was a was somebody that, you know, we were on the same floor and working with you know, you got to have separation, you know, of church and state between the front office and the middle and the back office, but didn't mean that we weren't working together constantly. So those areas of the firm, I, I felt very connected to. But what was interesting for me was once I went to the top of the house, now it was like I had to work with, you know, sales and investor relations and marketing. Um, and, you know, marketing to me is different than sales. You have your people that are out there communicating and you have the folks that are developing your website and helping write white papers, creating content to, to educate folks, that's those are different skill sets, right? Um, legal and compliance. We had built up a team to kind of help us um, so that we weren't just outsourcing that. Uh, that was a, a completely kind of new area. Accounting, finance, kind of working not just on the corporate and management side, but also looking at fund accounting and partnering with uh, the big four and some of the outside, um, you know, administrators and, and folks that we worked with. So all of that was very new to me. And so it was actually really exciting to kind of see the big picture of all of the various kind of groups and people on the team that kind of came together to, uh, to create success as a, as a manager. What does that look like? Two questions. One, when you first started trading and then towards the end, what was that shift of in the beginning? Was it model signaled and you had paper and you were saying we've got to buy 50 of these and they go to these accounts uh was that the beginning and then it morphed into fully automated yeah it's funny i used to uh i used to during some of my lectures to uh some of the university students when i was 
talking about what I'll call the electronification of, of the markets. And remember, you know, equities um, had gone electronic way before futures and FX. And so one of the things that I'll say, I think really helped us uh, during my time at Campbell was when we embraced quantitative equities and started trading single name stocks, they were already electronic. And so we were able to use some of the technology, some of the vendors we were using, right? And kind of use that as the roadmap to mm. um, be a first mover in, in um, algorithmic trading. And, and even before algorithmic trading, we, you kind of think we went from kind of voice trading to point and click trading to then at full automation with algorithmic trading. And so to be able to kind of follow that progression, but, but during those talks, you know, I would explain to them kind of the whole, like you and I come from the, the same kind of background. So we understand what it used to be like when a model would kick off and say, go buy a hundred lots of crude oil, right? The dance that you would have to do just with the yeah. floor, right? Where you'd be on two phones and you'd have two different brokers on and you'd call and he'd be screaming out to the pit and kind of coming back, you know, you know, Hey, it's 2021, you know, where's the size 50 on the bid, hundred on the offer, you know, go buy me 10. Right. And then he would buy 10 and, you know, he didn't know that on your blotter, you had to buy, you know, 500. Right. And you would just be like that algorithm, almost time slicing into the market, yeah. varying your quantities. You, you know, you do like, you know, 10, 10, 10, and then you do the last, like you'd say 13 and the guy on the floor hopefully would think that you were done. Right. And yeah. then you would stop <laughs> and you would watch the market come back right on your screens and then you pick up the phone, you call another broker and you do the same thing. And so that 500 lots of crude may take three hours, right? And you were all in it the whole time. It was like, you were the algorithm, you could do nothing else. And yeah. I think about that, right? For in an eight hour day, three hours on one trade. Right, it wasn't like, hey, can you take a look at this marketing deck while you're getting that 500 lot done? Yeah, I mean, yeah. right? I mean, like by the end of, by the time I left the trading desk, it was like, yeah, I mean, everything was fully automated. Orders were coming in from the systems going straight out uh, to different algorithms. And, you know, I, I know you and I have talked in the past, there's this wonderful analogy of it's a little bit like flying a plane, right? Uh, once upon a time, right? I'm sure the pilot took the plane off and had his hand on the yoke the entire time and then landed it, obviously looking at some gauges, but probably looking a little bit more out at the, the horizon. That was the way trading was when when I, when I started. And fast forward to kind of where it is now, it's a little bit just like flying a plane, right? 90% of a flight from New York to London is on autopilot. Uh, but we yeah. still haven't removed the pilot from the cockpit, right? You, you want that person in there to kind of look after the algorithm. So God forbid, if there's any sort of an issue with technology, you still have a person in there that can take it off autopilot and, and land the plane hopefully safely. And I feel like traders today are so much more uh, impactful because they're able to automate a lot of the, what I'll call low touch order flow. And now as a lot of CTAs have started to step into these alternative markets, which many of them require more care and feeding. In some cases, you know, maybe they're messaging somebody via Bloomberg in order to get uh, pricing. Some cases are still picking up the phone and calling a desk somewhere. And so they're able to free themselves up to number one, deal with high touch order flow, but then you know work on things like TCA and uh, evaluate all the providers they're using, the algos, um, to try to figure out if they're using a wheel concept, how much should we overweight in different markets, different regimes. Um, and that's really, when I look at our trading desk here at Quest, 
that's where a lot of the value is being added is, is just doing, getting into the details and figuring out how they can kind of optimize our execution to reduce market impact and keep trading costs low because as a short-term uh, CTA, that, that's a huge component for our strategies is trading costs. Right. Just small incremental changes at this point versus big, huge strategy changes. You oversaw billions there at Campbell and again here at Quest. So we can touch on this at the end if you want to get into it now. Just what's some advice for some funds, maybe at 50 million, 100 million, right? Somewhere in that lower level that just in what you've said so far of like, oh, I got to worry about TCAs and compliance and bringing legal in-house and all that stuff. Like we don't have time for the full roadmap, but if you have yeah. if you have a two minute of like what they should be looking out for and what's the best path forward to grow into a billion dollar fund, obviously the performance and everything, the strategy has got to be right for investors, but assuming all that's in place, what are your thoughts? You know, I think first off, you have to be patient. Growth doesn't happen overnight. Um, it doesn't happen in a linear fashion, right? Sometimes it's it's uh, two steps forward, one step back, right? I mean, um, I, I've rarely seen someone's AUM, you know, just be a, a perfectly straight upward line. Um, I'll use Campbell. When I got there, we were just around a billion, which at the time in 2000 was a was a significantly sized uh, CTA. Um, at our peak in 07, we were at 14 billion, um, and then unfortunately after the financial crisis, when CTAs became kind of the ATM for alternative investments and specifically hedge funds, um, as well as the, the Madoff crisis, which a lot of fund to funds got caught up in. And so, you know, we were getting calls like, you know, hey, you had a great 2008. You're one of the only things in our portfolio that made money. Um, we need a little bit of liquidity back. It's like, yeah, how much do you need? And they're like, all of it. It's like, yeah, what? Ooh. Yeah. Um, and so as a result of that, I think we went from 14 down to about two and a half. Mm. Uh, by the time that I, I took over the, the helm in, in 2011 into 2012. And, um, you know, I, we built that back up to five and a half, six billion um, over the course of the next couple of years. And then uh, before I left it at the end of 2019, the, the number had, had come off to about three billion. So, you know, if you draw that on a chart, um, you can just see that it's not a straight line up and that even sometimes when you when you lose some assets, it, you know, if you work hard and you have um, strong performance, you can and institutional kind of quality to the operation and, and your tech and your team, um, you can certainly build back AUM. Here at Quest, we've had a similar kind of run of uh, some peaks and valleys. We're at peak assets right now. Um, and and but it's it's been it's been a ride for Quest, Campbell and probably most managers in the space. As far as advice, you know, I, I think that you always have to focus on your performance. That's that's you know why people invest with you. Um, so it's performance first, and then second is differentiation, right? Like you want to have good performance, but if your performance looks like all your peers, um, you know, and we can we can get into this, but you know, there is a bias I think in the industry from an institutional investor standpoint, and certainly consultants towards some of the larger managers. You know, they can't cover everybody, so. We're going to cover the, the bigger guys that a lot of our client, you know, their clients have in the portfolio. Uh, but if you have differentiated uh, performance, that's going to attract attention to you. Um, having alpha kind of not just over the equity markets, but also having uh, alpha over your CTA and quant hedge fund peers uh, to show that differentiation. 
Um, and then finally, as I mentioned, it, it all comes down to, I think, your process, your procedure, uh, and just having it running an institutional caliber shop. You know, I, I think that it's one of the things, you know, during my time between Campbell and Quest, I ran a, a family office. Uh, and, and in that role, it was really interesting because we saw so many different types of managers, both traditional and alternative. And gosh, it was the spread between them from uh, um, how buttoned up they were on the, on the process and procedure side, you could drive a, a semi truck through. I mean, it yeah. was unbelievable. And, and I think that when you're a smaller manager, yeah, I mean, you, you can't go out and hire hundreds of people. Um, but the people that you hired from an infrastructure standpoint, hiring good quality people and insisting on them always improving and raising the bar. Um, I, mean, I think that that's one of the areas where probably smaller managers, they might have really great performance, but when the, when the team comes in to do the due diligence, if it, if it doesn't feel like some of the, you know, the bigger managers, um, that could be a reason why investors decide not to, not to, you know, invest. Yeah. It's such a chicken or the egg thing, right? Cause it's like, okay. yeah, of course I'm not one of the big managers because I don't have billions of dollars under management and millions to spend on staff. So it's like, how do you, you know, that's, that's the trick for these guys of like, okay, you got to hire one, they got to wear a lot of hats and then you hopefully raise assets and hire the next leg. Um, it's just it's to, actually, I, you know, and I've said this before, but I, it, it, you know, when I started in this business, you could have, you know, two people and a, a Bloomberg terminal and they could, you know, pull together some friends and family money and start a, start a fund at a couple, you know, five, 10 million and, and then grow to be a, a bigger manager. I, I feel like the trend overall in the, in the hedge fund industry has been, there are more of these kind of spin outs and, and uh, big seeds. Um, you know, somebody's at one of the big platform companies and wants to go start their own fund. And the next thing you know, they've got 500 million or a billion and they have the resources in order to be able to, uh, um, have that, you know, in many cases, they may even stay under the umbrella and utilize some of those central services until they can develop their own. And that makes it to your point, that much more difficult for um, new managers to, to kind of start up without that kind of institutional support. So we've touched on your new role at Quest. So it started and when was it? couple months ago? Yeah, I started uh, in June of, uh, of 2020, 2022, excuse me. Yeah. So the big question is what was appealing of Quest? What got you to uh, get back in the game? You, you sort of nailed the timing right before uh, or right during this epic run for, for trend and commodity trading advisors and managed futures. See, I can't, I'm the pro at this and I can't even get the, the nomenclature right. <laughs> well, I, I think sometimes it's better to be lucky than, than good. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I missed it, right? I mean, I had a wonderful experience uh, for two years, you know, working for Verdance and, and running a, a multifamily office. It was really interesting. You know, there were some parallels in that it was like trading, you know, 24-5, borderline 24-7. Um, helping people manage their lifestyles and their portfolios. Um, but at the end of the day, because there were so many things that we were doing for families, investments was a, was a core component, but helping them with governance and family meetings and, you know, the fifth home and private aviation and all of the things that kind of come with, you know, extreme wealth. Um, I kind of lost that being kind of in touch with the macro environment and the markets you know, every single day, you know, uh, 
you know, Asia, Europe, North America. And so I definitely knew that um, my career in managed futures and quant investing wasn't over. And so was was delighted when I got the phone call from, from the team at Quest. I've known Quest and Nagal for a number of years. Um, you know, Campbell is more of a multi-strat. We had, we did short-term trading, um, but not in the same way that Quest does it. And so I kind of knew a lot about um, the space, but it was fascinating for me to come in and meet the team. I think they have a very similar kind of culture of collaboration, um, you know, and, and just working together, feeding off one another um, is certainly a, a sense of curiosity and, and wanting to learn. Um, and I love that. And then, you know, at the end of the day, just a really unique strategy that uh, is focused on positive convexity and skew. And I think that though positive skew, there are a number of managers in our space that, that exhibit that um, to certain different degrees. Um, I feel like that was, the, and that was the mandate from the beginning was to build a portfolio that had that explicit focus um, which is unique because I think a lot of managers in the CTA world have kind of gotten caught up and pulled a little bit towards the hedge fund side where everything became about sharp, right? And um, the way that you increase your sharp in those multi-strat portfolios is to add as many diverse, slowly correlated uh, orthogonal sources of alpha into the mix as you can. And many of those may have more negative convexity than positive, right? So it will end up lowering your skew. I think that many managers, let's face it, between the financial crisis in 08 and the more recent kind of turbulence that we've seen in markets, you know, you, you have a uh, 12 to 14 year period where I think many CTAs, there was a reason that they drifted in that direction um, to try to keep investors happy. Uh, because providing kind of portfolio protection just wasn't even on the map. And, uh, and now, obviously, we've come full circle and CTAs are having an incredible year. And um, I just saw a report from Goldman the other day that I think that we're one of the few segments of the hedge fund industry that's not only positive year to date, but, but has pretty, pretty strong returns. Um, and so it's, you know, kind of interesting to, to see that the landscape develop over time. Yeah, and for me, I've always been a huge fan of Quest, what you guys are doing. Um, whenever I get pushed of like, you you can pick one, which is it? I say Quest. So appreciate that you landed there. Um, but that's an interesting point you make of like, a lot of CTAs just have a positive skew profile. They're not necessarily seeking it out. Um, and, and you could, just knowing some of the mechanics here, right? If I had added equities, like a long equity bias from 08 till... 2019 or whatever my sharp goes up i'm not showing any negative skew right my profile is better but fundamentally i've added this negative convexity position into the portfolio so it sounds like embedded in what you're saying like if there's a decision like that skew is considered above all else and it's like hey what does this do from a position level and a portfolio level in terms of adding positive skew to the the portfolio yeah it's it's interesting you mentioned that so I've been in a number of, of research meetings where that very topic comes up and listen, I, you know, in the short-term space, right. I mean, there's a lot of different flavors and short-term, you know, for, to some people means sub-second high frequency. And for others, like in our case, it means, you know, five to eight days. Right. So um, there are a lot of degrees of freedom in your, in both your lookbacks and your hold uh, in the short-term space. 
Um, but I do think that, you know, the two major strategies that you tend to see are moment, short-term momentum and mean reversion, right? And there, there's a classic example where um, it wouldn't be difficult for us to add mean reverting type strategies into our mix, but that specifically would reduce our, our skew, right? Because um, when, when, when markets are breaking out, when things are happening um, and there's economic uncertainty or uh, a policymaker says something, the market doesn't have priced in or a data point pops up or uh, one country invades another, right? All of these things that create these market moving events, um, you know, the way we deliver that positive convexity is trading that ball breakout and, and jumping on that market kind of as it, as it leaves the range, so to speak, that it's been in. Yeah. And when you have a, a blend of momentum and mean reversion, right, then you have half your signals that are saying, oh, this is just going to revert back to the mean, you know, fade the move. Um, and it takes some of the punch, if you will, out of um, the investment protection that you can provide in those moments. You know, the other thing that really attracted me to Quest and the short is the short-term space in general, right? Because having been both an investor and working at a fund with more of a medium to longer-term time horizon, there were two things that kind of always were, were at the top of my mind. The first is when a crisis would happen, how quickly is it going to take us to kind of turn this aircraft carrier uh, and, and get positioned in a way where we start adding diversity to clients, particularly given the length of trends that we saw on risky assets, right? Um, and being short term, you know, a lot of our clients call us their first mover in the portfolio, meaning, um, and I think the pandemic was one of the things that really impressed me when I was doing my due diligence on Quest before I joined. There weren't many managers that caught that, that uh, sell-off that we saw in March of 2020, um, you know, when, when we all had to go into, the, into our proverbial rabbit holes. And Quest caught it because of uh, the, the short-term time horizon um, that we trade and our ability to effectively get short risky assets and long flight to quality assets in that moment. You know, the other thing that is always top of mind is givebacks, right? When you have a longer term time horizon, and I think this year is a perfect example, and you've accumulated, you know, managers across the space, you know, are up between 10, 20, 30, 40, um, 50 plus percent. I think everyone in the CTA world is kind of holding their breath saying, okay, but how are we going to end the year, right? Yeah. Is yeah. there going to be that moment? And I think July of this year was really interesting. Um, because of our short-term nature, um, vol kind of took a little bit of a break. We didn't see a whole lot of opportunities. Um, and the models, I don't want to say they don't ever go to sleep, but they, they just kind of quieted down a little bit, right? Our vol profile and, uh, you know, went to a lower level. We didn't have a lot of exposure. And as a result, when we saw, um, you know, some of those big reversals in equity and fixed income that, um, caused a bit of a give back in CTA performance. I think on average managers were down between five and 10%. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't give back nearly as much. And, uh, and that was explicitly because in the short-term space, you're not forced to kind of always have a position on. And, uh, and that's another element that I think is frustrating to many CTA investors is when there is the give back. And so I'm not saying that short-term managers are always going to um, be able to protect you against that, but they just, they give you a different return profile. And I think that's why, whether it's fund of funds or just investors that invest in the space across multiple managers, 
will look to blend short-term managers with longer-term managers to, to have those different return profiles. Yeah. And to me, it, this year's actually probably been uh, made it hard for you guys to stand out because, right, commodities sold off, but bonds right on cue, boom, came in. And so most trend followers just kept this steady upward slope, even though that little bit of July, right? If if the bonds hadn't been there and the commodities had fallen up, off hard, we might have had 15, 20, 25 percent uh, reversals or or downside on some of the trend models. So I think moving forward now, if the bonds unwind and the commodities aren't there, that's when you guys hopefully will will shine through. And that's where short term can outweigh the long term there. Well, I, I think that's a phenomenal point. And I do think that if you're just looking at year-to-date returns, we probably, um, in the in the, in the the course of kind of the greater CTA universe, look like a lot of our peers, uh, many of whom are more medium to longer term. But, you know, one of the things that I like to point out is, you know, you can't just look, obviously, at one data point in year-to-date returns. I, I encourage people to look at the monthly returns. And one of the things that you'll see is that most CTAs kind of you know, had steady returns, you know, for the first half of the year between January and June, making a good amount every month. For us, once again, as a short-term manager, we had more lumpy returns uh, in March and April. Um, and a lot of that for us centered around the, the outbreak of the conflict between Russia and, and the Ukraine and seeing some big moves uh, in, in markets. And that's really, I think, where you know, we already have, we're seeing inflation because of some of the supply chain issues with the pandemic and the conflict, obviously, in Europe uh, almost poured gasoline on that fire and um, created some, as I said, some some significant trends that we were able to once again jump on very rapidly um, and make outsized returns. So if you're once again blending different managers together, looking at those monthly returns, both positive and negative, and trying to obviously optimize for for the best outcome. Um, you know, and that's almost statistically to be expected, right? If I have a positive skew strategy, I, it's going to be lumpier than, right? Uh, if I'm trying to get really smooth and not a lot of volatility, I'm almost trading off the, right? I'm taking consistent gains, trading off for outsized losses versus you guys saying, hey, I'll take consistent losses in exchange for outsized gains. Correct. Like, so, yeah. you know, the best way to, to think about it, you know, negatively convex strategies, just like, let's say, long equity portfolio. Um, you have a lot of small gains, and then when the when the tail risk hits, you have this massive give back, obviously, of those gains. Positive convexity is the complete opposite. You tend to have you know a lot of small losses that are hopefully managed, and then you have these big gains uh, that come when that when those tail risks hit. And so by blending the two together, um, you know, gosh, I, I mean, I know that you've looked at this before. Certainly, I've looked at it. You know, when you take just a long only equity investment, even if it's just beta and you combine it in a portfolio, let's just say we use 50-50 with a strategy like Quest or um, other positive skew strategies in the CTA world. Gosh, I mean, it, it's it's a it's a beautiful nav line, right? Because yeah. hopefully when they're drawing down, we're having that performance pop and and vice versa. And so it really smooths out that nav line. Talk a little bit about the short termism that's usually used in a, a negative way, but the, uh, in politics world, short termism. But for here, short term models, right? There's a risk that you don't capture the big moves, the the 
decade long trend. That's too long, but even a year long trend in oil or something, right? If I'm short term, I'm getting out on on a little bit of pullback. So I don't know if I have a question in there, but just part yeah. of me as an investor in a short term be like, okay, I'm worried you might not catch the big move. And you might be like, well, that's okay. That's why you add us and longer term managers or whatnot. Correct. And I, I think, as I said, that's the answer. I mean, I, I wish I had a whiteboard and I could draw this for you, right? But when you think about a long term manager and just think of like that, that beautiful kind of upward, uh, you know, trending market, let's say um, crude oil back in, in, in 2008 when we first went north of $100 a barrel, um, a longer term manager, right? It's going to take them more time to build into the position because. The mark the the market has to trend for longer before the signal you know gets you to that hundred percent long position right so you miss the first part of it then at some point when the market tops out and turns over it takes a while for the model to realize we're no longer in an uptrend so you end up giving back the last piece of the trend so what are you capturing you capture hopefully you know 60 70 percent in the middle and if it's a long-term trend then that can be really material now, blending in a shorter term, more nimble strategy means, hey, we're going to react a lot quicker. It's not going to take us three months to really build to 100% long. We might get 100% long on the third day of the move, right? So that enables you at the portfolio level to capture the early part of the trend that your long-term manager missed. And then at the top, when there is that reversal, same thing, right? We're going to be getting out, getting short sooner. Um, embracing the new trend. So hopefully we're mitigating some of your give back or your losses on the long-term signal. So yeah. whether you're a multi-strat manager that's blending those two signals together, or you're an investor or a fund of funds that's taking the two of them and putting them in a portfolio together, you know, I, I think that there's uh, there's some great synergies there. And what about, what's the downside? Is that something like guilt last week, right? Of like, I'm rallied 400 basis points i just fell 300 basis points right in day one day to the next day like that's almost too quick of a move right for a short-term model to capture yeah i mean there are is always going to be whipsaw right when you're yeah. a short-term manager there are going to be plenty of times where you think a, mar a market is breaking out of the range and and you jump on it and uh and then unfortunately through in some cases central bank intervention can be a reason why the market should be trending, but they're saying, hey, we're, we're, <laughs> we're crying uncle and, and we're going to stop this move from happening um, or just other other market forces. I mean, at the end of the day, right, it's kind of the law of averages where we're winning more than we're losing. Right. And just like with any um, systematic strategy, the key is that, um, you know, you have stops in the system and when you're wrong. Right. I mean, this is gets to the core of why systematic. Um, you don't have some a portfolio manager dealing with the emotions of fear and greed um, who doesn't want to pull the trigger and get out of the trade, right? The model just gets you out. Yeah, um, no way the Bank of England's going to do that. No way, right? You, you get an opinion, which is the end. Right. So that's what gives you that positive skew profile of, yeah, you might have a lot of small losses that are managed really well. And then obviously you let let those winners run. And that creates that that positive convexity. Let, let's go macro for a minute of, right, that was an example. We're raising rates in the U.S. Bank of England came in and started to buy bonds, lowering rates. So central bank divergence. Um, how are you viewing this current environment in terms of 
right? The the drawdown period from 09 to 13, a lot of people blamed central bank intervention, draining the volatility out of these, making it one big trade, risk on, risk off trade. Uh, are we into this better environment now where there's going to be uh, many more types of bets, many more, more dispersion in a broader array of markets? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that since the financial crisis, arguably even before that, uh, central banks have changed the dynamic of markets and certainly compressed volatility. Um, you know, the Fed playbook for years, as you know, was any at this, the mere sign of a crisis, right? Start cutting rates, start printing money, increase liquidity in the system. Um, and, you know, a lot of other central banks, you know, took, took our page right out of the Fed's playbook and started doing the same thing. So to your point, not only did we have uh, depressed volatility across a multitude of, of asset classes. Uh, but in addition to that, you know, we, we had this uh, real sense of, you know, that anytime there was a problem, there was a, a, a free uh, backstop, if you will, um, underlying the, the markets. Um, I think that we've clearly moved into a new regime. Um, I don't think anyone really is is debating that right now. I think really the debate is around how long will this current regime last, right? From a, a macro standpoint, you know, you've got these, I think of these, you know, the uh, three bullet points, if you will, everyone, you know, the law of threes, right? You, you started with the pandemic, um, which, you know, I walked to get a cup of coffee this morning in New York, and I didn't see a single person wearing a mask. People are close to each other on public transit. It's, we're, we're almost forgetting about it or thinking about it in the past sense, Though um, the research report I read this morning said that, you know, you continue to see whole uh, cities and parts of China that are shutting down because of their zero COVID policy, which then continues to lead to supply chain issues, which feeds into inflation. Um, you had the conflict in the Ukraine and, and Russia, which Putin doubling down, obviously, last week, saying that he's never giving back, uh, you know, land that was annexed and, and you know, kind of flirting a little bit with uh you know, with that, the word nuclear, which obviously gets people very nervous. <laughs> um, and so, and then, you know, as a result of that, you had this cheap money environment, you had these geopolitical risks that popped up very unexpectedly. Um, and that has led to inflation, which now to your point, has all of the central banks out there reacting somewhat differently, right? Bank of Japan still easing to your point, uh, whereas the Fed was the first really to, to come out of the gate in a material way. And uh, continuing to to hike aggressively to to try to uh, put a cap on on inflation, which you know, as an economist, I, I I tell people all the time, it's you know, once you let that genie out of the bottle, it comes out quick, but it's a lot harder and takes more time to kind of put it back in. And so, you know, my my personal belief is that we are going to be in this new regime um, for the next couple of years as central banks kind of grapple with. Um, not only inflation, but remember the two key macro risks that created um, that environment, they're still happening, right? Yeah. I mean, you remember when we used, we heard the word, uh, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve, right, for COVID. And here we are years later, still dealing with it. The Ukraine-Russia crisis, I, I remember talking to multiple analysts that told me, and these are people that from Washington that are, you know, so-called experts in, in that field saying, you know, this will this will last all of three days, right? Like, you know, just like in, in prior incursions into you know, Crimea and you, the Ukraine, you know, Russia will cross the border. Yes, there'll be some fighting and then it'll kind of all fizzle out. Well, 
you know, here we are six months later. And if anything, uh, Russia has doubled down. So uh, with some of the missile strikes that we saw just yesterday. So it's, uh, if anything, it feels like it's escalating. Uh, and then, you know, do you remember when the when Jay Powell said the word transitory in regards to inflation? Yeah, um, it seems like 10 years ago. <laughs> right, it's certainly not transitory. And um, just based on some of the data we've seen this week, it's it's continuing to be an ongoing concern. And I think though energy prices with some of the demand destruction fears came off a bit, you know, now we're seeing energy prices, you know, trend higher. And oh, by the way, you know, that's here in the U.S., Think about the situation in Europe, obviously, with uh, the conflict and some of the, you know, the supply destruction. Um, you know, we're going to have a lot of conversations about how people heat their homes in places like Germany and the UK going into winter. So, you know, these macro risks, it, you know, I, t- I told an investor just this morning, if you have a solution, right, if you can see an ending to e- any of those three macro problems, then, you know, you're right. Maybe this regime will, will there will be a pivot and we will see a return to better times, but it certainly feels like the storm clouds may be on the horizon for the foreseeable future. And from from me as an investor standpoint, right? If I'm looking to allocate to to Quest to someone similar in the space, right? I'm I'm a little worried. Like, oh, is, if it, is it too late? You run up too fast. The commodities already moved. They've sold off. The the bonds already rose. So that's kind of like, how do you navigate that? How do you answer that question? No one knows. No one has a crystal ball, but. To me, it has to center around like, hey, look at look at the volatility in these markets. It's expanding. It could it could contract, but it's not going to be that that nine to fourteen level uh, suppressed volatility. And, and if it is, you go back to that level. But that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to lose. It just means less opportunity, right? Yeah, you know, it's a great point. I do think that there are some folks out there that you know, unfortunately, during the good times. Um, and this doesn't just apply to CTAs, but probably their entire alts portfolio shrunk um, because they said we can we can get great returns on the traditional side for for lower fees, and and obviously that just became a, a self fulfilling prophecy as as markets just continue to go up and central banks kind of you know help them along, um, and so I think that you know there's two conversations that I'm having right now with with institutional investors. One is Folks that have an alts portfolio, have an allocation of tail risk protection strategies, have CTAs like Quest in the portfolio and are thinking about, you know, do I need more, right? Um, should I up the allocation? I talked to a, uh, an endowment just the other day who, broadly speaking, and I think they're very forward thinking, I'll say at a very high level, they were kind of 70% traditional, 30% alts. Um, and they're having conversations at the board level about pivoting to a 50-50 portfolio. Um, and I, and I think, you know, if we talked about that a year ago or two years ago, people would say that that's way too aggressive, right? But although if you, like we were talking about earlier, if you draw that nav line, it, it definitely looks the best out of all the options. Agreed. But, you know, Hey, I, I always remember, I think I still have the article saved back from 2008, you know, what were the best university endowments, you know, the Harvard and Yale model. And they weren't at 50-50. They were probably 35, 40% in alts. Yeah. Um, and and they they knocked the cover off the ball in relative performance terms um, to some of those endowments and foundations that were obviously a little bit heavier on the on the traditional risky asset side. So, you know, I, I think that um, those that, you know, may have, as I said, rid themselves or really walked down the allocation of alts, um, 
you know, they are, many of them are asking themselves, if you think of it, if this is a baseball game, are we in the second or third inning or are we in the eighth? Right. Yeah. And um, once again, I, I go back to those macro risks. And if you can see, you tell them it, it's a hundred inning game. So it doesn't matter if we're in the second <laughs> or the eighth. Maybe it's more a cricket match. Right. And it's, uh, yeah. it's five days, not, uh, not three hours, but, uh, I but think so I guess, do you think it's a mistake to think of it in those terms of like, what is the market doing? Right. Like that, it kind of, you, you will never know really the answer. So it yeah. just, you got to like the strategy and like the profile and, and choose to invest. I think, I think people have unfortunately lost a lot of money over the years trying to time markets, yeah. um, generally speaking, but specifically when it comes to CTAs, um, there are a lot of investors that have gotten out at the worst time and maybe gotten in not at a great time either. And so I think at the end of the day, it's about building a, a, a very diverse portfolio, allocating to traditional alts. And then with it, when it alts, having that CTA macro bucket, having other types of diversifiers. You know, when I worked, worked at Verdance on the family office side, it was, that was actually one of the most fun aspects of it for me was getting to actually learn about and invest in other types of alternatives, private markets, real estate, real assets, venture capital, direct company investments, um, different types of hedge fund strategies outside of CTA macro. So, um, you know, building up, there's a lot there, right? And, and were so you we talk were, about that. Were you like, there's good stuff in there? Or you're like, oh, this is all junk. It's all negative skew, <laughs> right? It's all it has a huge left tail. Stay away. No, from it. I mean, yeah. once again, I mean, when you think about family office clients, right? I mean, what's interesting is that they're pa it's patient capital, right? If you have hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars and you're only spending a couple of million a year and maybe giving away a, a portion of philanthropy, you have you got plenty of time. You can ride out the waves. And so, you know, it was fun because it was very unlike maybe a pension fund where they have to manage those liabilities and they can't just say, hey, we're going to put a bunch of money in an illiquid investment and we know that it's going to be profitable in 30 years. And we just don't need that money. Um, it's nice to have that kind of flexibility. And I do believe in, in other forms of alternatives, though, I feel that in this moment, obviously, um, we're, we're providing a lot of portfolio protection. And I think that's why we're getting, you know, a lot of attention. Before we let you go, I want to talk a little bit about the MFA. You were president for a while. Uh, tell us what that was like, what their mission is. And if it's a good thing, everyone should be involved. Give us the goods. Yeah. So I was chairman of the board. Um, and I was on the board for six years. Um, it was an incredible experience. So first off, I think a lot of people in, in our space think of the MFA as a conference company. Yeah. Uh, because they put on some incredible events between Chicago and New York and Miami. Um, but in all honesty, that's, that's to help educate um, and bring investors and managers together um, and really kind of talk about, you know, what are some of the key issues. And um, it is the also, managed funds association, not the managed futures association. Well, you know, it's funny you say that. So it started as the managed futures association and it's now grown into the managed funds association. And oh, I never even knew that. That was probably one of the elements that I loved the most was you had so many CTAs and quant managers because of it being the managed futures association who were kind of legacy members. And then as it broadened out and really became the voice of the you know, hedge fund industry, um, we got all of these new members from Equity Long Short and 
event driven and merger arb and um, macro, you know, market neutral and discretionary macro. And, and that was exciting as a member, right? Because now I'm in the same circle as folks that have all of the same challenges of day-to-day operations, um, regulations, dealing with investors, what should I outsource technology, but now they're not a direct competitor, right? So when I call somebody from an equity long short fund, he's not worried about me taking his call it operational IP. And so there's a lot of uh, collaboration and knowledge sharing between funds um, and having that diversity of membership really helped. Also helped me personally when I went into the family office space, because I, I understood a lot of different strategies. As you mentioned at the onset, obviously I've been very focused just on managed futures and, and CTAs for, for the most of you know, the bulk of my career. Um, but as far as what does the MFA do besides the incredible you know, conferences and events, you know, at its core, um, we were educators, right? So we would go to Washington, we would go to Brussels, we would meet with policymakers and regulators to really help them understand that regulation and financial services is necessary. We agree with that. But unfortunately, every time there is a crisis or a problem, the regulatory pendulum tends to swing, not to center, but sometimes well past center. Yeah. And the education work that we were doing in large part um, was to, to help some of these policymakers and regulators understand, um, number one, right? It was always interesting when we would meet with a, a member of the House or the Senate, and sometimes they would come in probably after having watched Billions or some other, <laughs> you know, or read some terrible article about the industry and really had an axe to grind with us. And, you know, in the early moments of the conversation, reminding them that the three, the three of their state's largest pension funds had material investments across the hedge fund landscape, right? And that um, that was because, you know, those pension funds believed that that having those key diversifiers in the mix uh, was crucial to managing their, you know, their, you know, their asset liability kind of long-term uh, dilemma. Um, and so that in itself was kind of educational, but then just kind of helping them understand that sometimes these aggressive regulatory changes that are made kind of in passionate moments uh, lead to what I will call unintended consequences, where it can have impact on liquidity in markets. Uh, it can have it can drive up the cost of trading and investing. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of this trickles down to you know weaker performance for uh, for hedge funds and alternative investment strategies, which then makes it harder for those pension funds and those pensioners to end up realizing their long term goals. So it was really about, as I said, just meeting with folks and helping them better understand the, the value that um, all hedge funds kind of kind of bring in investment portfolios. It was a, an incredible experience. That you reminded me of, it, it always bothers me whenever you see Twitter, like some hedge fund has big losses or blew up or something. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, darn hedge funds, those nasty guys. But I'm like, hey, it's some firefighters pension that just lost the money, right? It's not, it's not the rich folk just lost money. It's literally some... Uh, pensioner who just got hurt in that scenario. So don't don't cheer their demise so heartily. Um, but so at the end of the day, it's a it's a lobbying group. Is that fair to say? Right. So yeah, they're trying to. It's a, yeah. it's a trade association that um, yeah. part of it is educating its members. The other part is educating folks in places like Washington and, and Brussels and um, helping. You know, obviously, there's a lot of different opinions and perspectives in Washington and just making sure that the industry's voice is heard. Right. And I'd be, I Harken back to 07, right? Of man's futures trend was long, everything. 
and there was all this regulatory stuff about hey they shouldn't be allowed to buy commodities basically they shouldn't speculate in long commodities which drives the prices up which causes inflation um so things like that of like hey hold on this is how it works and we're i've joked we never get a thank you letter for when prices go down right (laughs) (laughs) i was just gonna say i remember i remember that date like uh, that uh, debate like it was yesterday and i do remember that people saying you know hey in this regime we happen to be short and we're driving prices down for folks. So I think the other thing too, that, that anyone that's, that's taken the series three remembers, right. is just that all important in the commodity markets is that all important relationship between hedgers and speculators. And that, you know, when the, the farmer is planting his wheat and wants to hedge it out, you know, three or six months, he needs somebody on the other side of that trade uh, in order to, to offset his risk. Right. And if you didn't have speculators in many cases, you might have all of the hedgers trying to do the same thing, which would, drive up their costs and uh, effectively, to your point, maybe lead to uh, more volatility and things like food prices, which isn't a good thing. Yeah, for sure. The farmer's going to be like, I'm not planting unless I get $10 a bushel. Right. Uh, right. To, so I have to build in my own risk instead of locking in the risk. Um, but so you're done with that for now, but you still keep in touch and, you know, I, I, we quest actually just joined the MFA as a member. Um, and so I'm excited to, to be, to just be back in the mix, as I said, one of the, the, the biggest benefits I ever got from it, other than learning more about different types of strategies and understanding how the sausage is made in, inside the Beltway, um, was this kind of being able, like when you're in the role of president or COO and you're, you're constantly going to meetings with all of these other presidents and COOs and you become friendly with them to be able to pick up the phone call and just you know, pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, you know, what are you doing on this issue? How? How much or how much time are you investing in this potential regulatory change that's coming? Or, um, hey, I'm thinking about a, a new, um, you know, outsourced accounting provider or you know, an audit firm. You know, who are you using? Um, do you like them? You know, would you recommend them? And just stuff like that. You know, um, yeah, that's invaluable. And and you can call consultants and and lawyers and other folks for that same advice. But obviously, they're they're running the meter on you, right? So. I always tell people, you know, if, if you evaluate your MFA membership based on um, how much, you know, you would be spending if you were calling outside counsel, um, it, it's not hard to justify, I think, at the board level. Yeah, let's let's lower the inflation and in outside counsel rates. So let's end, uh, ask all our guests for their hottest take. You got a hot take nobody else is thinking about? So I've got a, a hot take, and it's actually on something I think is is being talked about quite a bit. But maybe my view is a little bit, you know, yeah. provocative or con, or contrary, and and that's crypto and digital assets. Um, you know, I, to me, what's really interesting this year, um, because of the way that it started, and the vast majority, with a notable exception of people in our industry, have been it's like you know an equity or any other kind of asset where the vast majority of folks it's are long only right and they're they buy it they hold it and they hope it goes up and and you know there was a lot of people talking about maybe the diversification benefits of digital assets and boy if you overlay a a, a levered nasdaq uh, <laughs> chart on top of btc this year you'll see that yeah. um, they, they kind of moved in lockstep right so um, in many cases as traditional markets came off Crypto came off as well. 
probably for a multitude of reasons. So I think that was eye-opening um, for those as who were trading maybe the futures contracts on some of those digital assets. It, it created some opportunity, obviously, not just seeing the market go straight up. Um, but you know, my, my view there is that I think that a lot of people are very quick to say that digital assets are going to go away, right? That now that all of these companies are struggling because the price of Bitcoin and, and other uh, digital assets aren't just going straight up to the moon, um, are closing up or laying people off that, you know, that this whole industry that really kind of just blossomed out of nowhere. Um, and in all honesty, a lot of people that I knew from, say, the currency world um, or some of the tech providers in, in financial services have moved into digital assets. And so some of the brightest minds uh, in the industry have kind of gone that way. I don't think that it's going away anytime soon. Um, yes, I think that there is still some regulatory risk. I think that central banks not having control over something deemed to be a, a currency um, is, you know, there, there, that risk continues to be there for that, that marketplace. But the concept itself, and, and I would say the technology, and I've been saying this for years, you know, I, I think that blockchain in particular um, is an incredible um, kind of revolutionary idea. And if you think about it in the context of our world, where we're always looking to add new markets to the portfolio, many of the markets that we can't add, um, it's because of liquidity, right? And yeah. it's because settlement in a lot of assets, it cannot be done um, you know, in a day, right? And so um, having a more robust kind of blockchain type format for certain types of assets might, you know, I mean, gosh, dare to dream for anyone that's that's bought real estate, they know obviously how long that process takes, how manual it is, how many people have their hand in the cookie jar, right? I mean, gosh, if you could put real estate, whether commercial or retail uh, onto a blockchain and, and be able to kind of trade uh, real estate in a, in a more of a daily type fashion would really unlock a lot of opportunities. And there's there's many beyond that. Um, my closing thought kind of on digital assets that I think is a little pr provocative is there's been some talk recently about central banks um, rolling out their own digital currencies, right? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting that people were saying, well, Bitcoin can't be a currency because it's way more volatile. Well, I literally saw an article in Bloomberg, you know, yesterday saying, you look at this year, there are a lot of currencies that have been more volatile than, than BTC, right? So there's kind of that element. And oh, by the way, if you hold your assets in a currency that's down 20, 30% in a year, um, you might want to start diversifying into, who knows, other assets. And maybe, maybe that's a place where long-term digital assets really take hold. Um, but this concept of central banks rolling out their own digital currencies, I kind of, you know, that to me is, is going to be something to really watch in the future. So, I, I, you know, I'm an economist, so I, I, I can never say on one hand, right? I've always have two perspectives. But on one hand, you know, I do, I do think as an economist that, you know, having the data attached to every dollar that's spent in our economy, that you would have that data in real time and know what parts of the economy are strong and weak and the flow of money would be absolutely um, very, very powerful from a, a monetary uh, policy standpoint. Um, you know, think about things like stimulus, right? Like we would probably in a crisis not have to stimulate as much because if you gave stimulus out and it was digital and you said in three months, it's like use it or lose it, right? Yeah. Like 
the coupon expires. Um, instead of the worries that I have as an economist that people are going to take that money, they're so scared that we're in a pandemic and put it in the bank or under the mattress, they'd be forced to go out and either invest it, spend it, use it in some way. Um, it would have a greater impact and thus you wouldn't have to print as much money. Now, on the, on the other hand, right, I say, you know, there's some serious privacy concerns with, yeah. you know, the government knowing every single dollar that you, that you spend. And I think that that probably would worry a lot of people. You can, you know, imagine a world where, you know, somebody who has diabetes or some sort of health issue and they go to buy something, a food that's not deemed to be healthy for them yeah. and money doesn't work. Or, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of examples, right. Yeah. But that's I equate the element to, that's probably a little bit, you know, scary for folks. Yeah. I equate it to if they've said, right. If someone ran for president it was like, we're going to put a tracker in everyone's car. And if you're one mile an hour over the speed limit, right. You're getting a, a speeding ticket, right. That's the kind of control that they could have. Not that exact thing, but with the currency of like, yeah, you bought alcohol, you were underage, you can't buy alcohol, like all, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Is, is scary. So I don't know how they get around that, but then that's the conspiracy theory, right? Of like, no, that's exactly what they want. Well, and then and, and take listen, away all tax fraud. And whether it's it's true or not, the fear associated with if they were to make that move might be yet another catalyst for somebody wanting to have a digital asset that wasn't controlled by one of the world's central banks, right? Yeah, that would be um, the the ultimate. Hey, we created our own, and that really spiked Bitcoin. So, do you guys have it in the portfolio, the Bitcoin futures? No, we, we, futures? we, we trade it for some of our partners just as a, on a proprietary basis. Um, and I think more than anything, because if our clients, um, you know, want us to trade it in the future, then we have the experience, the data and, and, uh, and everything is set up and ready to go. But I think that from an investor standpoint, there's still kind of a mixed bag. Some that say, yeah, it's just like any other asset. If, if the futures are profitable in your models, you should trade it. And yeah, maybe another others, volatile I, widget. And then others that are worried about the regulatory risk associated with it. Um, you know, we, we are, as I said, we are trading the futures on, on a proprietary basis. So we've had a lot of really good experience and have, have, have put together a, a lot of data um, on it. Um, so we're fully prepared. But I just think that it's a, a really interesting space that I would continue to watch. Yeah, love it. Um, I'm on record as saying it'll never go above fifty thousand again. Bitcoin. So I guess we're on opposite sides of the spectrum. Then. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold. Oh, I don't know. Never is a long a price time. forecast, but I am gonna hold you to that prediction. If it, uh, if it ever does, we'll have to do another podcast. Yes. Uh, and then I want to mention quickly on their way out the Quest Indicator book, which is awesome. You guys send it out every month. Um, I think when we had, uh, and I'll mention we had Nigel on the pod a year plus ago. So we'll put links to that. He'll get way into how all the hedge funds are really just negative skew and disguise and why sharp's a bad metric, uh, all that jazz, which is great. Uh, but we'll put the link to Nigel's pod in there and put a link to sign up for the uh, indicator book. So um, yeah, I don't know what, what's it take to put that together. You guys just have all that running in the background and you just throw it together. Or is it a, yeah, no, it's, effort? It's, it's a, uh, a lot of it's automated, but more than anything, it comes out of our, you know, we're, we're, I think one of the things that's unique about not only Nagal, but the entire team is that um, unlike some quant managers, that I think are a little bit more just focused on the, the numbers and the data 
Um, we do look at the big picture. We look at what's happening in the macro world. And, and we're looking always at the markets and how our models are interacting with, with the market, with uh, what's happening kind of in the world. And, and that's really becomes the basis for not only risk management, but also more importantly, how we design new strategies. And so if we're looking at indicators that we think are really interesting, um, and sometimes they're not your, you know, what you're reading in the Wall Street Journal on Bloomberg, uh, we want to make sure that we're sharing that with our with our clients and our prospective clients. And so I think it probably, I don't know the history, I'm sure it started as a much smaller deck. And yeah, it just I've continue, been it. continues <laughs> to grow, right? Because once you put a chart in there, people are like, they want to keep seeing where it's going. So you, you can't really take it out. So you, we just keep adding to it. I guess it's the the beauty yeah, I think of it's 60 plus pages or something now. So. And, and growing probably by the month. So, you know, and then we call out each month kind of what, what we've added or, you know, hey, if you only have 30 seconds, look at slide 32. Like that's the one that is really kind of piquing our interest. And I think it's uh, as we think about kind of that, you know, quant meets macro, um, it's one of the value added services that, you know, we're, we're providing to uh, to our client base. I love it. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Mike. Great talking to you. And we'll look you up next time we're in either New York or Baltimore. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate yeah. it. It's been a pleasure. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.